0: The following announcement has been paid for by the Mike World Order podcast, hosted by Mike Cook. Hope everybody's been doing good this week. Um, For those who were tuning in Tuesday night on uh, FRM podcast, I didn't stay the whole episode. Um, Wasn't, you know, really feeling too good. I was just getting tired. My body was burned out, but, you know, for those who stayed the whole time, I think for what Mike Freeland mentioned, it was our highest episode ever, so, you know, much appreciation, much appreciation, but, uh, you know, usually I do my episodes on Wednesdays, but I didn't because yesterday was my dad's birthday, so if y'all are there listening, Pops, happy birthday, hope it went well. Glad you enjoyed the gift of now being the owner of a NWA World Television Championship, you know. So I uh, heavily appreciate that, you know, to the man who gave me life, the uh, the sole creator of the Mike World Order, uh, my pops. Yeah. So anywho, uh, tonight we're going uh, old school And by old school, I mean we're going pretty much, we're going there. We're going to go back in time. Old school wrestling, learning the territories. We're going to pretty much talk about anything that pops to mind, from the AWA to Championship Wrestling from Florida to Mid-Atlantic to Jim Crockett to AWA to UWF, Mid-South, Memphis, doesn't matter. We're going to talk about it or what people in my age range still know about it. And those who uh, aren't even old enough to know what Pro Wrestling Illustrated is back in the day, the value of it. So without further ado, my first guest tonight, you know, I known him from when I was working at my last profession back home in South Carolina. And he's pretty old school. I mean, he's old schools that come when it comes to talking about wrestling because uh, any other time I talk old school, some people either get it or they don't. He gets it, and he gets it on another level. He's probably the closest thing that you would mix up with, I don't know, Stu Hart, Billy Robinson, you know, maybe a little bit of Antonio Inoki. He makes all that up, and you got this guy, you know. He's always been a, a long-time guy that I've always kept in contact with. So without further ado, my first guest tonight, Coach Sitterson.
1: Got to unmute there. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah,
0: we appreciate you being on the World Order, man. You know, we, we finally- well, I know why you have me
1: here now, because you want to talk old-school wrestling, so you get the old man, right? I'm so old. I mean, I've been around a couple of times.
0: Well, not just that. I mean, if I talk about old school wrestling with any other person in my age range, the chances of them like comprehending are slim to none. So, yeah, look at it from that point of view.
1: This is true.
0: I mean, two weeks ago, my guest on the show was uh, NWA World Ju- former NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion Craig Classic. And we were talking about old school and all that. And uh, most people just was like, they had that lost look. So we're probably going to get that tonight, but hey, why not?
1: (laughs) Hey, you know, you got to understand if you really enjoy a sport, whatever sport you enjoy, you have to understand where it came from. You have to appreciate where it came from. I guarantee you before you love wrestling, before you ever love wrestling, you love powerlifting. And if I ask you about some of the oldest strong men in America, you could probably name those guys, you know what they did and you appreciate them. So actually,
0: it'd be the other way around. Wrestling was my first passion. Since oh, I was really? like, since okay. I was like 3 or 4 years old. Like I remember the youngest age I was when I first saw a pay-per-view. Like I was old enough to remember Great American Bash in 91, even though I was only, like, four years old. You know, same with Wrestle War yeah. 92.
1: That's like, good.
0: I, I remember all that, and it's so crazy. People would, uh, would mention, like, my knowledge of wrestling, but...
1: Well, I've I mean, always been... I've always... Whatever I'm doing, I always enjoy the history of it. And going back into the history, you find fascinating, fascinating things. Um... Some of the guys that I really enjoy going back to the 1800s, you hear about the Wiggins style of wrestling in England, which was one of the original styles of wrestling. And it was a coal mine in town. And these guys were double tough because they're going in these coal mines and digging it out by hand. And they'd go in the pubs at night and they'd lay $5 on the bar. And like, I can beat you in a wrestling match. And they would go out in the grass and go for two or three hours in the grass, and it was a submission style, made famous by um, Billy Robinson, a lot of those guys from Wigan. And once you watch uh, some of the training tapes they've done, you've read some of the books, and you start looking at, especially the English uh, Wild World of Sport. Oh yeah, back in the the fifties and sixties, it's a totally different style of wrestling. It's submission based, and yes, they were working finishes. But everything from the start to the last minute or two of the match were unscripted, um, and the only thing that was scripted it was as far as the match itself was who was going to win and who was going to lose. But how they got there was it was just a, an artful form, and they didn't do a lot of flying around. But it was a lot of submission wrestling that we use now in uh, modern cage fighting. Um, Guys like Dan Severn, you know, some of those older guys. A lot of the jiu-jitsu today is based on that. Um, But I like to see a little bit more uh, judo, jiu-jitsu mixed in with it. But, um, you know, and a lot of the, the wrestling, you're talking about the wrestling in the territories. A lot of it started with carnivals here in America. The carnivals was where it all started.
0: That's how they got started on.
1: Yeah. Uh, And a lot of the carnivals would go into town and they would, they'd have a strong man or a guy out there who was a shooter. And for the younger kids that don't know, a shooter is a guy that can legitimately put you on the ground and put you in a hold that will legitimately hurt you in some way. Will it kill you? No, but you're going to wish you were dead after they let you go. Uh, and the shooters were these guys that were kind of the enforcers and they'd stand up in a ring in the middle of a field somewhere and they'd find the toughest guys in town and go pay your dot. This is like the 1930s and forties. And you hear guys, you know, pay your dollar and we'll last two minutes with our wrestler and see if you can do it. And, and, They'd all get stretched. And really they would line these guys up. And and the trick was they'd line the big guy like you up, the small guy like me, and everybody would say, I can take the small guy, right? And they'd go in there and a small guy like Stu Hart, who's only how tall is Stu? About five seven, five
0: eight? I think Stu was taller than that, because all of his sons were uh Yeah in the six foot range.
1: Again, too, he might have shrunk with age or he might have had some scoliosis in his back when he got older. He looked a lot smaller when he was older and, and he, all that. He
0: was 5'11.
1: Okay. So he wasn't terribly huge, but I the, the small guy was the guy you didn't want stretching you because they're quicker and they would just kill people. Um eventually that grew into the territories. The The circuses, the sideshows, beat our champion, stay in there for five minutes. Um, These kind of things emerged into territories. And I've always heard it said by Jim Cornette, by other guys in the business, that whatever style of wrestling was on your TV, and for, here again, younger guys out there that don't remember the rabbit ears and that kind of thing before cable, your local TV signal only went probably 30 to 50 miles outside of where you lived. So your local territory wrestling would be about a 50 mile circle from a major city. And a lot of times, like I grew up outside of Richmond, Virginia, which was the Jim Crockett territory. You grew up in Buford, which was also Jim Crockett territory, Mm -hmm. but we had no idea with regular TV We had no idea about Florida, about Continental, about Memphis and these kind of things unless you read the magazines. And a lot of times you didn't know what happened uh, from one town to the other because the TV didn't reach that far. And with the territories, whatever you grew up on as a young child, the booker and the promoter told you that's what wrestling was. And everybody in that area or everybody in that town loved their style of wrestling. And it was drastically different everywhere you went. And, well, I'll give you a quick example um, that I can speak to. The Jim Crockett territory, which was morphed into Mid-Atlantic, was originally a tag team territory. It was very technical. It was very wrestling based. There wasn't a lot of flying around. And I'm talking about the 50s and 60s. And it was very tag team oriented. It was very wrestling oriented. It was a lot of holds. And it was a lot of uh, submission style. Whereas if you go to western Tennessee into the Memphis territory, you had some of the biggest brawlers and the biggest brawlers. Because oh, yes, that was
0: brawling of, of anything.
1: Yeah. There wasn't a lot of technical wrestling there until Dundee got there. Billy Robinson made some places. Um, The Fullers got there later on, but it's always been a brawling kind of territory. uh, And Florida was even more technical than Carolina.
0: Yeah, Uh, because you had, like, uh, the Briscoe brothers, especially Jack Briscoe with that arm drag. Like... Wasn't he the guy who innovated the Arm Dragon pro wrestling? Like,
1: yes, sir, that is true.
0: Just Jack, and I know Ricky Steamboat made it like super famous.
1: Well, here again, and this is my bias because I am a wrestling coach and I'm also a submission coach, and I do the style I teach is more of a old school English submission style. And you've seen me teach kids this, and um We'll stretch you and we'll hurt you bad, but uh, moving back to, um, you know, the Briscoes in Florida, um, they were NCA champions. They were out of Oklahoma. They were from, I forget what Indian reservation. I want to say Cherokee.
0: I think so. The, the but
1: um, they left the reservation. They were great wrestlers. They went through high school. They went to University of Oklahoma, I believe. And I'm doing this off the top of my head. And the amateur wrestling that they learned then translated very well into the pro days. And you watch their matches, a lot of what they do was technically sound. Um, Guys that are NCAA champions, Danny Hodge was another one that was a tremendous amateur wrestler from there that translated into the pro ranks. And one thing about it, was um, the promoters in Florida. Eddie, Eddie Graham was a huge fan of amateur submission wrestling. And he would tell his guys in Florida to go out to bars and don't cause any trouble right off. But if anybody says wrestling's fake, go over there to the end of the bar and stretch them. And if you ever lose, you're out of the territory. If I ever find out that you lost to a civilian or a fan, you're out of the territory. And he would have the snake pit right there at his wrestling dojo. And there's videos you can see on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Um, Bob Root was a amateur champion. He was an army champion. He was also an Olympic Greco champion. And they would go out there in the snake pit in Florida And Eddie would bring in people that wanted to be wrestlers, and they'd stretch them. And one of the greatest stories that I can think of about somebody getting stretched in the snake pit, Hulk Hogan, Terry Belia, went out, and I think in his first tryout match, somebody posted his leg and broke his leg in three places.
0: Hiro Matsuda.
1: Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Couldn't <laughs> quite remember the name, but broke his leg in three places without breaking a sweat. And sent him on home and said, once your leg heals up, if you really want to do this, come on back.
0: Yeah, I remember that story. Um, and, and here yeah. Matsuda was one of the uh the the owners of championship wrestling for Florida, along with uh you know Dr. Graham, and it's it's crazy. So I didn't watch a lot of Mike Graham's. Uh, wrestling like when I first saw him it was more like the end of his career when he was in WCW as like he was semi enhancement semi not but he was always on TV kind of like a Brad Armstrong
1: Mike know? Graham had Mike Graham had the WCW book with uh it was a conglomerate of people It's about five or six people there for a while him, Mike had the book with i think kevin sullivan
0: no not and, yet hmm? sullivan didn't uh joined the booking until like the late 90s okay at that time when uh when uh mike Graham was there he was more uh early to mid 90s because he retired i want to say his like last tv appearance was not too long after star k-91 and it would have been cool if they would have done an episode of Saturday night or even worldwide uh, seeing him and Jushin Thunder Liger go at it because, mm-hmm. you know, those few moments they had at K 91, they weren't doing the flip flopper. They were actually doing chain wrestling and all that at one point. And that would have been interesting because at the time Liger was, you know, WCW's like heavyweight champion and you know, a former IWGP junior heavyweight champion, but people sometimes forget Mike Graham, also former NWA world junior heavyweight champion. You know, he and back and, in his day, he could go and, and it or that not, match, he still could.
1: Do you know what his love was before
0: wrestling? I think he was a, um, I want to say he, uh, uh, I know he was a district champion. I'm, I know that in Florida. Because, I mean, they documented all the time from watching old episodes of Championship Wrestling from Florida. But, um...
1: He was a know, world-class... He was a world-class power lif- lifter.
0: See, I didn't know that. I just know that him and Ricky Steamboat went to the same high school together. They were on the... Mm-hmm. uh They were, you know, weight-class rivals.
1: You know, um... I'm drawing a blank Um, his workout partner and his friend that they started lifting together and they went over to uh, Eddie's house, his house to work out and lift for powerlifting. Then Eddie saw them both and said, you know, I need to get y'all into the wrestling. His uh, best friend growing up and one of his buddies in the powerlifting game was Austin Idol.
0: I believe that
1: back in, um, it was Mike. What was his real name? Mike. Uh,
0: oh, Mike Rotunda.
1: No, no, not Mike Rotunda. Um, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. But you're talking about the territories. And I, I want to make the point for all the younger viewers before we, we're jumping around a little bit. But whatever style in the territories that you grew up with that you saw on your local TV with rabbit ears, And this was long before cable TV was what you thought wrestling should be. And the booker and the owner educated you as to that's what it was. Anybody from Minnesota, anybody from in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin would say Baron Von Raschke and the AWA is where it's at. Um, And that's what wrestling is. Anybody from L.A., Eugene LaBelle was educating them with what wrestling should be anybody from the Portland area is getting a strong dose of early Roddy Piper and it's just a different style entirely. And there's nothing wrong with different styles of wrestling. And honestly, this is my opinion only wrestling was better back then because you had a lot of guys that were jobbers that were green, that didn't know anything. And they got up to, I'd say beginning mid-card status, and they would always go away. They do. I mean, you've heard Jim Ross say it a hundred times. Go away, go somewhere else, learn a new hold, and come back. They would go away, reinvent themselves, try something, and come back and be even better every time they came back. And being adaptable to different styles is what made you good. Um, My case in point to that, Roddy Piper was great in Portland. His interviews, his mic work was great in Portland. But it only got to the top level, in my opinion, early, w, early Crockett, 78, 79, 80, when he did guest shots, and then he got real good when he was doing his Georgia stuff with Gordon Soley. Uh, and then it got even better and more outlandish in the WWF at the time. But his mic work got really good. He got good at drawing heat. He started learning it in Portland, and he polished it a little bit in Portland, but he got really good when he came came east. Oh, yeah. And wrestlers today do not have the opportunity to wrestle in territories and learn something new and get exposed to different people. I can take a guy who's a mid-carder in, in one place. He goes somewhere else, and he's huge. Um, I, um, any of you younger wrestlers? There was a mid-card jobber that worked for uh, the Fullers. The guy's name was Marty Lundy. And Marty Lundy, know. Marty Lundy kind of sucked. But then he fell across a guy named Richard Fleer who took a liking to the man and said, you need to come to Crockett. They gave him a new new gimmick as one of the Anderson cousins and that became one of the baddest wrestlers of all time and one of my favorites, Arn Anderson. Marty Lundy wasn't much but Arn Anderson is the man and it took him a little bit of time and a territory to polish it off with the Fullers before he got good enough to go to Crockett, and then NWA, WCW, a little bit of time in the WWF, coming back to WCW to really, really be Arn Anderson and the Four Horsemen. Hey, man, I'll do it too. I mean, it's you know, I, you know that man. When he says something, he backs it up. Um, Hulk Hogan, without the territories, Hulk Hogan would not be Hulk Hogan. You had to spend time in Memphis, right? Don't you agree?
0: Oh, yeah. I think Memphis, everyone had their at least one. I mean, how can I say this? At least your household name wrestler had to at least have done a tour of Memphis once. You know?
1: Well, I'm going to, you're probably going to ban me off this podcast forever for saying this. I doubt it, but Memphis was not my favorite style. I love, I love some of the wrestlers.
0: Well, I'm not surprised.
1: I love some (laughs) of the angles. The angles were great. Um, And I love Lance Russell. Lance Russell is a phenomenal commentator. And he was one of those guys. He moved the stories along, but he wasn't involved in it. Um, I like the guys. Now, here again, I'm showing my age. But I like the guys that are the announcers, and that's what they do. And they don't get involved. Uh, the Crockett's, Bob Cottle, Lance oh, Russell, Lance Cottle. Gordon Soley. You Those never green saw green. you never saw Gordon Soley or Bob Cottle getting involved in an angle and get knocked to the floor. And if they did, it was a mistake. And, oh, my God, they apologized profusely. And you get guys like Bischoff, who started off as a WCW announcer, and he gets all involved in the NWO, and he gets involved in these angles. And it's different. And some people like it, but an announcer should be an announcer. And when Bobby Heenan was in WCW and he had his neck issues and Pillman (laughs) jumped all over him, I I didn't like
0: that. He then said, what the fuck is wrong with you?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he did.
0: I I guess because Pillman was playing his character. And speaking of Pillman, by any chance, did you check out his uh, Dark Side of the Ring episode?
1: I did. I did. And what what were your thoughts since you're the Uh, host?
0: I think so. There was a couple of things they could have brought to light that they never did. They didn't mention about the first Pillman child that went into wrestling. They didn't mention that. They didn't, they didn't mention about uh, Lexi Pillman. You know, she was the first one in the family that was going to get her teeth cut in the sport, but he got cut short because she died in a car accident. They never mentioned her at all.
1: No, they didn't. And I think they, they focused on his son because his son is currently in the business. Right, and he looks so much like him, and moves like him, and yes,
0: and it's crazy because I met Brian Pillman Jr. at a uh, Nova Pro Wrestling event. This was a couple years ago. This is when he was doing MLW, and the reason why he was able to do a show up there because Teddy Hart lives in Richmond, still does, yeah, even though he's on house arrest. But yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> yeah. He's, I mean, you being a person that's a fellow Virginian yourself, Richmond is like a little over an hour where I'm at. So, like mm-hmm. literally Teddy Hart's right there in the area he lives in. It's, it's not a – it's a pretty rough area.
1: I know um, there are several I'm, – I'm, there are other towns, obviously, that have more professional wrestling ties in them. But our claim to fame – Um, And I'm talking Metro Richmond, not just the city. You got Teddy Hart there. Mickey James is from there. And um, the Hebners are there. And And I um, have a childhood friend who is running a Virginia-based promotion out of Richmond. Uh, She's the booker and owner. Uh, Her boyfriend is a guy named, or boyfriend or I guess husband now, is a guy named Ethan Cross and he spent some time in uh, WWE. But, I mean, Richmond's pretty big with um, wrestling history, and we're pretty steeped. We were wanted, going back to the territory thing that you mentioned. Um, for the kids that don't know, and I, I'm, hey, I'm a school teacher, so this is going to be kind of a lesson. I'm sorry. That's hey, what I do. I
0: teach. That's 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 what makes it interesting, though. It's, it's one of those episodes I know a lot of people wouldn't join in on it, but it does give you that learning curve that, you know, well, that's why I want know to join you, the Mike,
1: you've known me for a lot of years and you've sat in my classes with my kids and I just try to be straight with them and keep it real. But I've been teaching for 21 years now, so everything I do gets a little preachy and it gets a little lesson like, and I don't mean to be that way with some people, but that's just kind of how I convey information. But... Um, Going back to the territories, one thing you have to understand, wrestling was better back then, uh, largely because guys would work one town every day and work twice on Sunday. So a minimum guys would work would be eight times a week times. They didn't take a lot of vacation time. So even if they got 50, 50 weeks in 50 times, eight, that's the number of dates a guy would book for a year. And a lot of territories, they had weekly towns where you would go every Monday night, you'd be in one place. Every Tuesday night, you'd be in this place, Thursday, Friday. Then you had, and Richmond was one of those towns. Richmond was the, I believe, if I remember right, for the longest time, Crockett would run shows, the Richmond Coliseum, on Friday nights. That we were a Friday night town. Norfolk was your... Uh, Thursday night town, usually on a Wednesday, it was a TV taping in Raleigh, and they would be on WRL TV 5, do their taping and be at the Dorton Arena. Later in Crockett, they were out of Charlotte. They would do all their taping out of Charlotte, and they would go to Spartanburg, a small town. And the weekends would be Greensboro and Charlotte. And then you had places like where Mike grew up in Buford, and you guys ran shows, what? Not every week, but.
0: Well, they didn't do shows in Buford. Like most of like the NWA and the Jim Crockett promotion shows. Like, of course, you know, WWE didn't dare come down this area back in the day, but it was mostly the NWA, Jim Crockett, and uh, later on WCW, they would do uh, shows at the uh, Civic Center. Now, the right. Savannah Civic Center is split in two. So they would do the MLK Arena, which is a whole lot smaller for house shows. But then if they were doing like a big show or a big TV taping, or like say if it's a main event title match, or they're doing tapings for Power Hour or Worldwide right. Wrestling, uh, then they would do it in the bigger half of the Savannah Georgia uh, Civic Center. So, yeah, like I remember friends of my dad's that would show me like photos that they took from, you know, the house shows in like '89 and 1990, where I was seeing the Freebirds and Sting and Luger and Ronnie Garvin when uh, before he after he came back from uh, WWF. I guess they had him, like, as a guest or something. Because I'm looking at the time frame, and I'm like, hold up. Garvin was still in WWF, so it, I don't know what the deal with that was. But um well, look,
1: I mean, I'll be – and kids don't – well, here again, a lot of times a guy would double book himself. He'd book himself – um this was before ironclad contracts, and this is before the internet. And news didn't travel like it did. I could – say I was a professional wrestler, I could have a contract with the WWF and work shows in Stanford up north, but if I wanted to do a memorial show or something like that happen, the booker would call me, I'd put a mask on, and I would go out there, and everybody in the world would know who it was, but legally you can't prove it uh, because I got a mask on. Um, every good wrestler... If you go to Wikipedia and look up every good wrestler from the territory days, they've got seven or eight names, and most of those are masked because they were doing an angle in a territory, a loser leave town, come back. Um, But look at a guy like Bob Armstrong. He was the bullet wearing the mask. And then his son, when they got to TNA, the first couple years of TNA – they the Road Dog put on a mask and he was wearing his daddy's mask and he was the bullet.
0: Yep, um, storyline.
1: Jimmy Gar, uh, not Jimmy Gar, Ronnie Garvin
0: mm-hmm.
1: was under a mask at least four times that I can remember. And the most recent one, what that I can remember was Mr. Knoxville when he was working for the Fullers out of Knoxville. He lost a loser leave town, came back. And he was Mr. Knoxville for a little while. And the whole thing was everybody, or, or, you wanted everybody, you wanted everybody to know who it was.
0: What about Dusty Rhodes with the Midnight Rider?
1: Oh, I was just I was just gonna say that. <laughs> oh, that was the, that was a horrible angle. Oh my god. Was, that I angle mean, was that angle was great because it was a great angle. That angle was horrible because it was done so many times. Dusty was anytime. Okay, let me back up. Dusty was always the center attraction wherever he was from about the mid 70s in Florida on up. And if you want to make the argument that he was a center attraction, a a superstar attraction in the 60s, you could even go back that far because when he was at the Texas Outlaws with Murdoch, wherever they went as a tag team, they were a great attraction. The problem is everything revolved around Dusty and sometimes he would go away to let an undercard guy come up or feature. you know, Instead of featuring the world title bouts, we're going to do the, the territorial titles. We're going to do the mid-Atlantic heavyweight champion for a while, or we're going to do the, the national heavyweight champion for a while. He would go out to Memphis. He would go to Texas. Um, he had parents in Texas, obviously. He would work out of the Houston office for Paul Bosch. Because I think his mom lived in Houston. He would do, if you see those old, old, there's old footage of him in the WWE working shots up there. When Florida got too tired of him, you know. And Jim Cornette's favorite saying is, I can't miss you if you don't go away. So he would be there, do his thing. Go up north for a little while. Do a little few dates here and there. And then he'd come back a month or two later. And people would love him. Well, the problem is he didn't want to go up north anymore along about the late 70s. So he started the Midnight Rider angle with the mask in Florida, and it got over huge. He did it again where he beat Tully up, I think, on a Saturday morning show for Crockett. And it was the thing where he hit, uh, he back elbowed Jim Crockett Jr. Jim Crockett took a bump. And, you know, the NWA out of Kansas City said, you can't do that. We're going to suspend you for 60 days. So then here comes the Midnight Rider again. And and again and again and again. And after about the second or third time the Midnight Rider came through, it got old. It was a very cooked angle. It was a very dead angle.
0: It was more like Midnight Rider ass out of our territory. Next.
1: Hey, you know how many times did he do it, Mike? I'm thinking at least four.
0: Way too many.
1: And then he got that. Well, and then he had that time where he was the James Gang with uh, Magnum.
0: Remember they tied saw that, that same thing in TNA.
1: Yeah. What did M- Magnum took? Um, who was it? Magnum and Magnum and uh, Dusty were in the back of the truck as the James Gang. Yeah. They tied the rope around Tully, I believe, and tied it to a trailer hitch, and told Baby Doll to take off in the truck and she damn near hung him for real. <laughs> dragging him across the parking lot. And you know, that's what they did. And that's why the territories were great because you saw these guys every week and and they worked so many dates. I mean, a, a wrestler today is lucky. A big-time pro wrestler is lucky if he works one day a week. And that is why old-school wrestling is better, because they had more time in the ring. And you had a guy, if he worked a year in the territories, okay, that's a lifetime of experience today, because you can't get as many matches. And you want to talk about territories? Now I'm going to go into something that I don't particularly know a whole lot about but you do it's one of your one of your areas of expertise anytime you got big the japanese promotions would throw big money at you for hey i need 6 weeks and they loved americans and they really liked rough tough redneck americans oh yeah and some some of the greatest japanese non-japanese wrestlers the americans that went over there and made it big Stan Hansen, the Funks,
0: Bruiser Brody. they
1: loved them. God, they loved them.
0: That All-Japan wrestler, yeah.
1: They would pay scads of money. You're talking they would pay you a half a year's pay for six weeks' worth of work. Oh, yeah.
0: But you'd have to
1: go over there, and the strong style they do over there is completely different than anything they do in the States.
0: Well, I know during that time frame, so you had like New Japan and Noki's promotion they were more strong style where all Japan they were more what they called the royal road style which was basically Japan doing their version of strong style mixed with American style so they called it royal road that's why a lot of guys and this is just me freestyling I don't think guys like Terry Gordy and and uh, Steve Williams would have made it in New Japan or to an extent depending on the time frame, I wouldn't think Hanson would have made it. Because when you think of during that time frame, foreigners in uh, Japanese wrestling, especially for New Japan, New Japan, the only really foreign talent that they turned into a big star was like Hulk Hogan and Big Van Vader and Bob Backlund, you know, guys like them, Andre the Giant. You know, All Japan, well, was, Andre, to Andre to Japan. Andre
1: was big wherever he went. I mean, that oh, Andre,
0: yeah. I don't think
1: you can put Andre in that conversation because he was just so big wherever he went.
0: But still, though, All Japan weren't able to get some of those guys, you know, because wow. I think New Japan, they knew they could wrestle, but they also wanted to make them like a character. Whereas Stan Hansen's gimmick, I really wouldn't think that's a gimmick. That's just Stan That's Hansen being Stan yep. Hansen you know and because of that it's 2021 Stan Hansen is still in Japan he's not wrestling but he's part of the uh you know he's part of all Japan's Pacific Wrestling Federation championship board he's actual it's, chairman
1: isn't he more of like a trainer and a
0: Oh no he's not a trainer he's just he's um, he's, he's, he's 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 the president okay he's the chairman and president of so <laughs> all Japan Pro Wrestling is, is run by the Pacific Wrestling Federation, which actually started in America because all Japan's three championships, their main championship is called the Triple Crown Championship. Now it's just one title. But before it was three different belts, it was the NWA International Heavyweight. It was the PWF World Heavyweight and it was the NWA United national heavyweight title, which that was the one David Von Erich brought to Japan from Texas.
1: Yes, and yes.
0: I think it was a match with him and Jumbo Saruta was for a decision match for all three belts, which is now called the Triple Crown Championship. But uh, I think because they kept those original belts, they started falling apart the past few years, so they ended up making a new belt to where it's just one belt now, but it's still got all three championships, you yeah. know.
1: All I think- can tell you is I, I like watching a lot of the Japanese wrestling, especially the older stuff. Oh, yeah. Anoki. Um, I like Inoki. Um, I like a lot of Fujiwara, some of those guys.
0: Oh, yeah, Fujiwara. F- it's crazy. Fujiwara is still training people.
1: And he's got to be 70. 70s, yeah. 70. Oh, yeah. Well, they're in better shape. But I just know anytime I'm a big Southern wrestling guy, I'm a big NWA guy, and I can rattle off five or six names that pretty much went to Japan and stayed there. Uh, Hanson, yeah. Brody was there for a long time. They loved Brody there.
0: Oh yeah, um, they still love Brody. Brody's influence.
1: Terry Gordy was huge. Steve, Steve Williams, Williams was huge. Um... But let me ask you a couple questions. I've been thinking about what we're going to talk about tonight about the territories.
0: We're, talk, we're talking about the territories. Where we haven't stopped talking about the territories.
1: All right. Well, let me ask you a couple questions, if, if okay. I may. First of all, why was territory wrestling better in your mind? I, I said one of my ideas was they worked eight, eight matches a week. So what were your thoughts on why it was better?
0: I... So this is going to be a funny comparison of why I think it's better, right? It's it's kind of like going to a buffet. You got a variety, you know, yeah. even with like YouTube. One day I could be watching Memphis. One day I could be watching Jim Crockett. One day I could be watching, you know, Oregon wrestling. I could be watching California, you know. Um, and plus it gives it to where – like, say, for example, I want to go to, you know, California, go do like NWA Hollywood and, you know, go there and all that. Then once I get tired of being there, then it's like, OK, I want to go somewhere else. Then I can do the J.O.B. or get injured and just relocate somewhere mm-hmm. else after, you know, waiting a couple of weeks. And you can see me in like, you know, the territories of like Mid-South Then I'd be on Mid-South and then, you know doing the same style in front of a fresh crowd because it's all about relevancy, you know? Like, there is some downfalls to, like, Memphis wrestling for someone like Jerry the King Lawler. As a kid, I hated Lawler. I hated him for the fact that he won Bret Hart's King of the Ring and everything he was doing that was annoying. I hated Jerry Lawler, like, with a passion but then I watch his stuff from Memphis and I'm like, these people would drink the water. He soaked his feet in like
1: Um, there was, and, and I'm stealing it from Jim Cornette and I'm sure you've heard the story a bunch. There was an angle they did where Jerry Lawler got in a brawl in the parking lot. And some lady on Memphis was watching Memphis wrestling in her home. and and got so worked up by what was going on, she called the cops and told the cops to go down to the wrestling arena and stop the murder on TV. (laughs) I mean, that's how invested the people were in Memphis. I want to say the show came on 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and I think Jim Cornette said one time the highest Nielsen rating they had, 78% of the TVs in the greater Memphis area, Every Saturday, we're on that channel watching wrestling, watching Jerry Lawler do whatever. And, I mean, like you said, that was that's the wrestling they had. That's what they grew up on. Jerry was the king. You know, he was always feuding with Dundee. Then he was partners with Dundee. And pretty much everybody who's anybody went through there. I mean, at one time or another. But, like you said... We had our favorites. Um, Mid-Atlantic, when I was coming along, I'm, I'm a little bit older. Um, when I started watching wrestling, it was 75. I was three, four years old, 75, 76. And um, when I got to be 10, 11 years old, it's the early 80s, I can remember every Friday night the wrestlers would go to the Richmond Coliseum and some of them would stay overnight before going down to Norfolk, and uh, they'd say at a holiday in a local holiday Inn, and eat pizza. And the first thing that really struck me as weird is I heard um, Nikita Koloff and Ivan Koloff speaking with Canadian. Well, Ivan, especially speaking with a Canadian accent, which I thought the guy's not Russian and he's like ordering pizzas and stuff at a pizza parlor. And it's Ivan Koloff. I mean, how can you miss Ivan Koloff? Who looks like Ivan Koloff, right? and he's ordering pizzas at a local pizza place where I happen to be with my family. And he's like Canadian and stuff. And I was like, what? And it was like the kayfabe got pulled back and I was just tripping out. But, um, really, like you said, you know, they worship, I mean, people, uh, people worship the ground. These people walked on ring, up in, in, in NWA. Um, what was it? Um, Oh heck, Roddy Piper was in Raleigh. And he's coming down, I think he's coming down the aisleway after drawing heat, and somebody stabbed him and cut him from like his belly button all the way to his neck. Uh and and just about killed him, I think, if I remember the story correctly. I mean, this heat was real. People would rush the ring and people would riot. Um, I'm sure some of you younger remember, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, One of the cage matches that Dusty Rhodes had in Greensboro. People were rushing the cage trying to get in there. I think it was when the Oli turned on him. He was tagging with Oli and Oli had a heel turn on him. And they started breaking his leg. And they were climbing the fence to get in there to help Dusty. So that's the kind of heat these guys drew. Um, And I mean, it it was a real deal back then. And you know you don't you didn't have social media back then and the heels had to be in different places than the faces and you couldn't be seen with other people and you definitely couldn't be in the same location that they were in. Um, what's another reason you think that they, that the territory was was better? Other than the, the you mentioned the styles and you mentioned going somewhere and learning and going somewhere else which is a good thing but can you have any other reasons do you think about anything
0: else i can give you plenty of reasons uh another you know when one territory is struggling another territory can also help out as well too um and i see that a lot in the japanese style they i think they inherited that from us and they still keep it going like when they see a promotion that's struggling you bring in their world champion from another one you know We've seen it all the time with Flair. You know, some territories he would go there just to put um, their champion over, not by clean pinfall, maybe a DQ. Or um, sometimes when, you know, a guest comes in and beats their top person, it kind of also validates that top person as well, too, because they're going against someone from a way another level. So it's a win-win situation. You know, to where sometimes seeing dream matches, it just makes the anticipation that much more sweeter. Whereas nowadays, even though we're starting to go back to territories, but everyone has been there in this one, this one, you know, and it's kind of weird because it's like, okay, this promotion, you two guys are tag champions. But now we're going over to this promotion you guys are in. And a week later, you guys are going against each other, you know, in a cage match. But then two weeks later, I'm going to see you two same guys again, tag champs like nothing happened. happen I just watch you guys on the other territory two weeks ago.
1: I'll be honest. Um, I agree with that. I really do. They're jumping around too much and I was going to mention the storylines and the angles. It was very common in the NWA, especially in the South. Now I can't I'm not up on Memphis. I watch a lot of Memphis, but I'm not up on it quite as much as I am, say, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. That's pretty much what I know. But it always worked better when, by and large, the heels had the belts and the baby faces were chasing. Now, up north and in Memphis, the faces had the belts and the heels were chasing. And it's just different. It's a different philosophy. But today in booking, I've tried several times, Mike, and you've heard me lament about this. I've tried watching the modern product twenty or thirty times over the last ten years, twenty different products, and I just, as soon as I fall in love with something, it's gone. Uh, mm-hmm. I really, the only thing I'm watching now that they could even say was modern was NWA Power, yeah. and that's just because that's just because I like tire irons. That's
0: all that's the only reason. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like I like it because it has that old school huh? You know, I, I just like that old school studio wrestling, like even yeah. Ring of Honor, they started doing studio wrestling, even though it's in the, the college, but they started doing that. Yeah. Um
1: but you know, let me reason, finish this, was, let me finish this real quick, if I may. Me, I'm sorry.
0: No, no, uh, go ahead,
1: bro. In the in the um Back then, whoever had the belts and whoever was chasing, it might be different. It might be the heels chasing the faces or the faces chasing the heels. But a typical NWA Crockett storyline was at minimum eight months, eight to nine months. If there was animosity between two people, they would build it to some big show and they would take the show and work backwards and book the whole thing backwards, and and the whole angle would go from inception to blow-off, eight months minimum. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. Angles today last 15 minutes from one commercial to the next, and it drives me crazy. I've tried watching that product from Stanford that you watch, and I I can't do it.
0: I I barely watch WWE like that. Now, I watch the pay-per-views, but – I mean, like I said, I've been literally uh, watching the independents and watching a lot of Japan, if anything. Yeah. That's pretty much. It's, the WWE is just it's not getting any better. Now, I watch the NXT product because the NXT, it's, it's more run by a lot of old schoolers. They make storylines yeah. last. It's just there's something about the main product or when there's a wrestler from NXT that goes to the main roster, it's like they're misused. You know, and I
1: think a lot of a lot of this is let me find a guy or a girl that looks a certain way, muscle or personality or persona, and then we'll teach them to wrestle as an afterthought. When back in the territory days, folks, you had guys literally that would beg to wrestle and these promoters would say, "Okay, kid, if you want to wrestle that bad, I'm going to give you a ring truck and you're going to drive the ring truck everywhere we go. And you're you and a couple of buddies are going to set the ring up and your practice time is going to be before the matches, before anybody even gets there. You and a bunch of other teenagers are going to work out in the ring and learn how to wrestle. And they wouldn't even have any professionals helping them. They're just like grab ass and playing around on the mat. But some of the guys that got their start setting up rings are some of the guys that don't look good, didn't have the best bodies, but they are the hardest, best workers in the business today. Uh, Bobby Eaton got his start that way. His One of the guys he was setting up rings with in southern Alabama and western Florida was Michael Hayes. He and Michael Hayes were running around setting up rings. Terry Gordy had done that. Just about any kid that grew up in the wrestling business might not have the best body, but man, they could work. And I'm gonna tell you, some of these, and it's not necessarily about size, Mike. I'll be honest. When I was a pretty when I was a pretty big power lifter and all that, I was about 205 and and all that, and I was a pretty big guy. But I had to believe that wrestler on the screen could potentially whip my ass. That was really what I wanted to see. Now, today, you got a guy that's five foot nothing. He's 100 pounds soaking wet, and he can't even work. He doesn't scare me. Now, I'll tell you something. Terry Gordy scared me. Muda, I didn't even know what the mist was. And I knew the green mist was bad, but that red mist will kill you yeah you know and i was scared to death and you want to see somebody like um oh there's there's tons of them brody oh my god brody scared me as an adult you just didn't know what he was going to do here's another one size doesn't matter but i had to believe that guy was was going to be brutal and vicious in everything he did guy wasn't more than five and a half foot tall but he was five and a half foot wide and that's kevin sullivan you couldn't tell me, even as an adult that knows the business and knows how it works, I still think that man is the devil. I mean, his stuff in Florida with him in the purple haze coming out of the ocean and him doing seances and spells on the beach and the fire coming up and all that and the woo and all that stuff, man, scared the devil out of me. And I've told you this a hundred times. The worst beating. I've ever seen anybody taking a ring. I can't remember the kid's name. You'll, you'll know the kid was in Smoky Mountain when he cut that kid's the inside of his arm from his armpit to his elbow.
0: Kintaro Kanamura
1: Oh my God.
0: And, so and that, that was Kentaro real.
1: That was real. They had to take him to the hospital and he can't speak English and all he spoke was Japanese. He's in Knoxville, Tennessee. They're trying to tell him how to stitch him up and what happened, and he can't even communicate with them to do it. And he lost tons of blood. I think. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh. But you know know what the crazy part is? When he went back to um, FMW, those people looked at him like a big star because of that incident. That incident made him a big star because before he went to Smoky Mountain, Kanamura was getting a lot of heat in general as a wrestler, not because of his character or because he was a young boy, the simple fact that he was a uh, Korean-born Japanese wrestler. So you know how that went. Uh, yeah. So he had no choice but to go to America. Like, Onita, pretty much told him, go to America and learn, you know. And it's that, crazy you mentioned about-, about Muda. Muda still does the character... Well, he doesn't do the mist anymore because of the pandemic. But even at his current age, when he does the character, you know, he still makes it convincible that when he spits out that green mist, it's like you can't see, you're blinded.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, hey, I know you got to suspend disbelief when you're watching something like wrestling or a movie. Obviously, Star Wars isn't real, but we all love Star Wars. But I mean, I knew Kevin Sullivan was the devil. I I knew he was the devil. I knew Danny Hodge could kill me. And Danny Hodge isn't much more than five foot tall. Uh, They don't all have to look like Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior to get over with me. Bobby Eaton, I think, is probably one of the best technical wrestlers you're ever going to see this side of Billy Robinson. And I've watched his stuff for years and I don't know how he does it but to do some of the things he did and not cripple himself like some of the major wrestlers today you don't have to jump off a balcony to impress me and really one of the guys that scares me as a modern wrestler uh, that, that really is believable I'll give you I'll give you th- well one tag team and one single new jack would come in my house and cut me yeah i love new jack new jack was great smoky mountain new jack was the best new jack there probably was (laughs) uh, just for the promos the His best work was probably ecw but those promos (laughs) um i don't know that i you know honestly i don't want to get you in trouble with the people that host your podcast but i don't know that i can repeat some of the things he said in smoky mountain Oh. About, the, I don't think I want to repeat that, but you know what I'm talking about.
0: Yes, and and it's crazy because watching old school Smoky Mountain and seeing them on TV, it would show afterwards, you know, these are not the views based off of Smoky yeah. Mountain wrestling.
1: <laughs> and and there's a lot of guys today that are believable as wrestlers, even to the adult me, that they don't use um the Briscoe brothers. Yeah, today's Briscoe brothers. I'm not talking about Jerry and Jack.
0: Oh, Mark and Jay,
1: the the Sandy Fork folks. I like them, and they're a little comical. They're a little comical, but that's just how they are. But I I like it. It fits. Hey, every every wrestling show, even if you're a place like Crockett that was very technical, okay, they had to have something for the kids. They had to have something for Grandma. They had to have something for the middle aged people. And Jimmy Valiant, for years, for about 25 years, was the comic relief in Crockett. And heel or babyface, he did the same four moves. He wrestled horribly because he was older then. He was great in Memphis. But by the time he got to Crockett, he was so beat up physically, he couldn't do a lot. So he only had five or six moves. And his, you know, boy from New York City gimmick and dancing around and playing with the radio and kissing everybody, you know. It's comic relief, but I just had to see him kiss David Crockett at least once a week. <laughs> and watching another man kiss another man, no, that's not really my thing, but it was funny as crap when Jimmy did it to Crockett. Or even better yet, Tony Schiavone. Tony Schiavone fell on the floor. He was so surprised one week. <laughs> oh, boy.
0: What do you expect is Tony Shivani Tony Schiavone. <laughs>
1: I mean, he cool. love, kissed Tony Savani and he knew it was coming but you know he <laughs> couldn't stop it
0: I mean Tony just let it happen Tony just oh. let it happen that's all
1: and I'll be honest one of my I might be a little evil or I might be a little just, twisted just a little but these kids need to look everybody needs to look if you want to learn about wrestling look at the YouTube videos of Ronnie Garvin on the Saturday morning show. If you want to see real shoot wrestling, watch him wrestle any one of the jobbers. There's about a two-year period in there where he was on every Saturday morning and he stretched every one of those jobbers. Uh, Tommy Angel, a whole bunch of those guys. Rocky King, he beat Rocky King to pieces. But it was more of, you know, he's sitting in the in the corner talking to the guys like, fight me, fight me back, fight back with me, give me be stiff with me and he'd stretch a guy, put him in a crucifix, put him in the sugar, do all kinds of things. And those guys are screaming bloody murder and it's real, but he's trying to educate those guys live on national TV on a Saturday morning. And of course, David Crockett is going, going crazy about having have an orgasm over in the corner. <laughs> Look at him. Look at him, Tony. Look at him. Oh my God, Tony. Oh God. You know, but that's what David did. But, um, yeah, I love the territories. They need to bring them back. They need to train guys the right way. Training schools are horrible now. Everybody went to real training schools. and They start them off with the basics, and they start them off like I start kids off with wrestling fundamentals, real shooting, and then they teach them the, the flashy stuff on top of it. You don't have guys like the Malinkos anymore or the Fullers anymore or any of the guys. Nelson Royal. Trained thousands of people. You don't have that anymore. Um, even up north, um Johnny Rods was famous. Trained um, the Dudleys. Dudleys. Trained the Dudleys. Then you got guys up north. Uh, Eddie Sharkey, out of Minnesota, was a great trainer. He trained everybody coming out of the AWA. Vern Gagne trained all the original guys and after Vern gagne retired eddie sharkey took over and he trained everybody from about 1975 all the way up until the modern day he trained odb uh was one of his trainees and he's still training kids eddie sharkey's got to be close to 80 or 90 by now but um i really think the territories were the way to go um the, the guys wrestled more they had more opportunity. They had, like you said, they can go away. They can reinvent themselves. They can learn something new. They can polish something up. They might go heel for a while. They might go back. Let me ask you this, and, and this is your honest opinion now. Okay. Obviously, one of the one of the few WWEF guys that I like is Steve Austin because he's my kind of wrestler. But what people fail to realize is he polished himself with the Hollywood Blondes and in WCW and even before then in Texas. He wouldn't be Steve Austin today if he didn't have a run with Pillman and WCW to polish some stuff up.
0: Yeah, because that's what got him ready for his, U.S. heavyweight title run because, uh, you know, when he first got in, they already like pushed him to be world television champion, and you know, it, it was just one of those things where he teamed with Pillman. That's when you know they both learned off of each other because you know Pillman needed that spot. And you know, originally they were going to give Steve Austin that U.S. title push before Hollywood Blondes, but I don't think, um, I don't think it would have been time for it, you know. I mean, yeah. think the timing of him being champion was good. It's just that what kind of angered me about it as an adult, even though it didn't as a kid, but as an adult looking back, you know, this dude was putting in mad work as champion. And only for him to job in what, 15 seconds to hacksaw Jim Duggan? Now, don't get me yeah, wrong. Nothing to Duggan. He's a legend but I mean he is but you know I get it he was brought in because that was one of Hogan's buddies the sign over to WCW but they literally buried someone that they pretty much rebuilt as a single star after being a very successful tag wrestler someone that something that they didn't expect happened Hollywood Blondes was just supposed to have been just you know, they threw them together because they didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, they yeah. didn't expect you know them to be on. They,
1: they spent a lot of time building a guy up just to burn him for nothing.
0: And that's how it was with a uh, Pillman.
1: Well, I mean, you're you're mentioning they spent all that time with the Hollywood blondes and everything else, and then they burn him in 15 seconds to Duggan. That that didn't that didn't finish anything. But. You asked my opinion earlier. We got a little off topic. You asked my opinion about the Pillman documentary. I really like the early years. I like when they talked about his NFL. I like when they brought in the strength coach. I like when they went through with Pillman's life and time. Shortly after the funeral, I was losing interest. And I actually turned it off with about 20 minutes left because the last 20 minutes. I went back and watched it the next day and it was all about his widow, his kids and a lot of non-wrestling stuff that really didn't apply to him because he's gone.
0: Yeah, but that's why it's called the Dark Side of the Ring.
1: But look at the look at Brody though. The Brody documentary on Dark Side of the Ring went from his football career through wrestling and it stopped with his death.
0: No, it's built to the part with the family too. Had, not yeah. as not as deep, not as long. I'm actually well. I mean, mind you, it was it was their early stages of it was the first season, you know. Yeah, they were, they were trying to work just, on a lot of things. Uh, you know, I
1: get was, I get the man had a lot of kids, and I get his kids are having some struggles, and I know his his ex wives are having struggles, and I, I respect that, but it just detracted from. I, I would like to see more wrestling content and less aftermath after his death. But then again, I'm a hardcore wrestler and I'll sit here and watch a guy on YouTube stretch a guy for an hour and a half and enjoy it with no all Matt wrestling and I'll enjoy it. And I know that I'm not the average fan anymore. Um, That, you know, talking to his widow, that was the supermodel or whatever, you know, that sells and talking to his son sells interest. But I like, you know, some of the earlier stuff for Dark Side about, you know, the wrestling and all. I would like to hear more about Pillman and Canada. Of course, I'm a mark for Stu, but.
0: Of course, you know, that's that's where Pillman got his start in before, you know, the NWA and WCW took him in. He was, you know, working for Stu Hart's promotion and.
1: Look, I would love to hear – and here again, I'm not typical. I am I'm, – I'm, I coach a wrestling style. I'm a wrestling coach. This is what I do. But I'm more fascinated with how Stu taught him, how he learned at WCW, who he rode with in WCW, what he did. Um, after his death, I don't know. It didn't appeal to me quite as much.
0: I mean, and, I guess listening to other people's shoot interviews – like they mentioned Pillman was a, a pretty big coke head in WCW as well too that's why he was always
1: yeah
0: uh, wired at all times you know yeah, that's what I believed
1: and you know here again too it's a sad thing but um, it happens A lot of these guys are pro athletes they enjoy the spotlight and I understand that completely and we all know that even though it is a work business, When you climb to the top rope and you get thrown off on a superplex, your body is hitting that canvas and there's nothing under there but plywood and steel decking. And your body takes a punishing abuse night after night. And maybe that's where modern wrestling is better than the old school because a lot of those guys would start taking one or two painkillers, one or two Percocets, one or two here, there. And you hear guys like the Patriot, Del Wilkes, he was on tons of pills and painkillers and just about everybody in the business was. And then that leads to other drugs. And, um, you know, you have one or two neck injuries or something. And if you missed a date back then, you didn't have a guaranteed contract back then. So if you missed a date, you didn't get paid. So a lot of these guys were addicted because their job required it almost. Which is sad, but it's the truth. Don't you think so? It is, it,
0: it is a sad truth. You know the the sacrifices that had to be made. You know,
1: I mean, some of these guys don't remember or don't know the history. But let's say you're in a territory like you're in Savannah one night. Well, I'm I'm living in Savannah now, and. You do a shot in Savannah, and then you've got to be in Raleigh the next day. You're going to instantly get in a car and you're going to drive seven or eight hours, hit a hotel room three or four in the morning. You're going to sleep until about noon. Then you're going to get up, do it again, and you might go from Raleigh to Washington, D.C., or Nova, or Tennessee, or West Virginia. I mean, some of these territories were huge. And if you've got a bruise or a broken limb or something like that, you taped it up and you worked
0: pretty much. I mean, paying your dues.
1: Yeah. And it was very rare to not be injured. Um, and some guys are more injury prone than others. It's just naturally how the body works. But, um, the only guy that I didn't know that, that really got through injury free was Steamboat really? He's the yeah. only one I can think of.
0: The only injury he's had was the one that ended his career.
1: Yeah, that was the only one. Then you look at a guy like Ric Flair, he shouldn't be alive.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he survived the plane crash that with a back injury that said he never wrestle again. And you know, also wrestling that heavy schedule in the NWA, like, um. So, my buddy, Craig Classic, he, at one point, he sent me a photo, right? And, you know, it was a copy of Ric Flair's schedule as world heavyweight champion in, like, the mid-'80s. Like, it showed, like, one day he was in Auckland, New Zealand, and then two days later, Tokyo, Japan. And then the next day, you know, he had to be in Singapore. And I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. Like, leave Tokyo to go to Singapore in less than 24 hours. Like that, most of
1: those most of those uh, world champion were sixty minute broadways. Oh yeah, we're not we're not talking ten minute matches. Sixty minute broadways,
0: or if he do like a tour in like Puerto Rico, the first night he'll lose the belt to the person, and then a week later or a few days later he wins it back. You know,
1: I was just like
0: literally reading his whole schedule. I was like. I thought I was a workaholic with my work schedule. A A lot of guys,
1: um, this, this comes from Cornette um, for what it's worth, but a lot of guys, they wanted to put the belt on. And for the younger guys that may not know, or the guys that don't know territories, what it would happen is there was a board of usually six to eight promoters. They would get together once or twice a year at a convention they would decide who the world champions is going to be. The world champion would have to pay a deposit for the belt. He had to pay
0: $50,000. Excuse me? $50,000.
1: Yes. And that was probably in the 80s. It was a little less and a little more depending on when you were talking about. But, yes, I think you're right for the 80s and 90s. Uh, once you paid that retainer, the booker in your home – territory made your dates for you sent you the schedule and it was a worldwide tour where you're going 60 minutes every night with their local champion if you're going out to memphis you're going to wrestle the the mid you know the memphis champion whoever that is you're going to go awa you're going to wrestle their guy you know back in the day and you're literally going all over and a lot of the guys turned down the belt because they could not or would not maintain the travel. And Flair was one of those guys. He just loved it. He just ate it up and loved it. But if you remember uh, when he left and went to WWF, he did not receive his retainer money back from WCW. And he says, if you're not going to pay me my retainer money back, I'm going to keep the belt, and he shows up on TV, and I believe they had to block it out, or...
0: Well, the first time he showed up on an episode of Primetime Wrestling, the belt wasn't blocked out yet. Um, like, there was a few times that, you know, the belt wasn't blocked out until finally the NWA, and WCW wanted to get their money, mostly Jim Hurd. Um I yeah. Everyone, well, yeah, everyone's <laughs> He uh, he was the one that caused them the the lawsuits where they had to, you know, bleep out the belt. And you, you know what I don't
1: blame Flair though. If I paid fifty grand for a belt for retainer fee, and I travel that thing international in my in my bag, and I'm carrying that bag with me everywhere I go, and I haven't lost it anywhere in the world, and then you won't pay me a retainer fee back for the belt? I'm taking it with me until you pay me. I don't blame it. I don't blame yeah, it
0: at all. I don't blame Flair. It just sucks because of how things were, you know, before he left. Because originally the, they were supposed to put the belt on Barry. That never happened. So yeah, they ended up replacing Flair with Luger. Then Luger started siding with Harley Race. And honestly, even though Luger was in the match, I still would have wanted Barry Wyndham to win it. I think it was overdue for Barry.
1: Barry was a, well, people in the business have said that Barry was the best natural wrestler they had ever seen. He picked up everything just by watching. He didn't train very hard. He didn't train the ring very hard. He didn't lift weights. He didn't work out much. His only physical work was town to town every night. And he was one of these guys. He could do it all. And he was very fluid and very um, natural with it very early on. And for whatever reason, part of the reason was Barry. Barry Barry had a problem when he got to a certain point and he started getting pushed. He didn't particularly like it. And he would disappear for a while. And he would bounce around because he wanted to be mid-card and make pretty good mid-card money but he didn't want a lot of responsibility. And when they started putting responsibility on him and carrying belts, he managed to vanish a lot. His dad kind of did the same thing. Oh yeah. Black Jack, Jack was, is. Black Jack was famous for that. Uh, Hey, I'm in NWA. You want to push me? I'm going to go to the WWF for a while. And then I'm going to come back and then I'm going to go away. And then I'm going to come back. And, um, Early Barry Windham in Florida was probably one of the best versions of Barry Windham that I think. Um, you know, uh,
0: I think my best version of Barry was when he was in the Horsemen because that's when he started. Say that. Well, I mean, because like uh, you like you mentioned, uh, Barry was just natural. In what he did, he didn't had to work out. He ain't had to lift weights. But then no. once you know he started working out and lifting weights you'd see a change in his body. Like, Barry was more solid. Like, the dude almost had like a six-pack for me. Yeah. You know?
1: But I've been told and read in several places uh, from trusted sources that Barry enjoyed the girls. He liked fast cars, and he liked a lot of coke. I mean, you can look
0: at him and tell.
1: I mean... if I was making that kind of money back then and I was single, I
0: don't know. I'd go buy a Porsche. I mean, wouldn't you? Porsche. Yeah. I'd I buy mean, a Porsche. Yeah, a Porsche and an eight ball to go with it. <laughs> go two hundred.
1: Go two hundred miles an hour down the highway. Why not? I'm only twenty some years old and I got the world. Yeah. And you know, I Dustin Rhodes. I'll, I'll be honest. One of Dustin's Dustin was one of those guys who was also kind of a natural. And he was always good. And um, his first run in Crockett when he was like 16, 17, early on, before he teamed with Barry, he was good. And, you know, people say different things about Goldust. And I I just never liked Goldust as much as, as the natural, the WCW stuff. And then it even got stupid when he was on the back of that tractor trailer with um oh
0: uh black top bully uh played yeah, that by a very uh, Yeah, that
1: was just that was dumb. Here again, I mean, was that a herd herd deal? Wasn't that a herd deal? No, nah, that was a Bischoff deal. Same asshole.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I just think it's funny how this guy went from Crusher Khrushchev to Uh, what what was the tag team name? Uh, Demolition Smash. Yep. The Repo Man. Now you're the black top bully.
1: I mean, you know, I'll be honest, and I will will tell everybody I am biased. I am a child of the South. I grew up in Richmond. I've lived in South Carolina. I've lived in North Carolina. I'm, I'm living in Savannah now. I just crossed the river from Buford, big deal. But um, I love my Southern wrestling and my Southern wrestlers and everybody, because of Vince's, see, Vince hates the fact that he grew up in Winston-Salem. All right. For those of you that don't know, before he got tied up with his dad, he was living with his mom in a trailer in Winston-Salem, North Carolina and hates Southern people. So every time somebody came up from NWA to the uh, WWF, he made fools of them. And these are all my heroes growing up as a young man, and he made idiots out of all of them. Of course.
0: Bill yeah. Irwin.
1: Bill Irwin. The baddest man i ever seen. He had a bullwhip before, um, before Dutch Mantell, and he would whip people with, and he was bad. I mean, the guy was tough. They make him a hockey goon. In WWF,
0: really, or, or even uh guys like uh Tony Schiavone when he was working for WWE, he had yeah. to take voice training classes because they didn't like his southern accent. You know, Dusty Rhodes, how he was booked. You oh, know, I don't even start on that. Him. Dusty was my hero
1: growing up, and they put him in polka dots. Polka dots.
0: It's like I don't get it. Like, what is with the polka dots? I. There's, there was never an explanation of him, and thank God he stopped doing polka dots in 91 and went back to his regular Dusty look. You know.
1: Well, I think he just wanted to embarrass them. All the Southern wrestlers, he just really wanted to embarrass them all because he didn't make them. And what ended up happening is guys like Dusty said, look, you can embarrass me all you want, but I'm going to laugh and take my paycheck all the way to the bank.
0: Exactly.
1: And they didn't care. And he didn't know how to use them. He didn't know how to do Southern wrestling, which was, which was the big thing is he had some of the best Southern wrestling minds there in his company. You've got the son of Boris Malenko. You've got Arn Anderson there. You've at various times, you've got Bruce Pritchard who basically ran the Houston office for Paul Bosch for years. You got Jim Cornette who'd been everywhere. Duggan, who'd been in mid south, I mean, they knew how to do stuff, and he just he abused them because he didn't like them, because he has a bias against southern people. I don't know.
0: I think so. I think, especially with Vince McMahon being from, you know, the south, I think he holds high resentment to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I
0: think that's I think that's the uh, the reason why. He holds a real high resentment to the South because that's that's not him, you know. And, and like I said, like we pointed out, it shows in all of the characters, you know, or anyone who came from the South. Uh, you know, they turn guys like Max Payne into man mountain rock, like oh, what? Or I think probably the only thing they did right was Johnny Be Bad. They couldn't get the rights to Johnny B. Bad, but they gave him wild man Mark Merrill. I am probably the three percent of people that are fans of Mark Merrill. I like him. I like
1: him. I think he's a poor man's cocoa wearer, but
0: that's I don't just even me. think that. I don't even think that. Like I don't know. When, I like him though. He 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 never really sung or anything. But, I mean, yeah, he had the little Richard look. You know, he was a Golden Gloves boxing champion. But, I mean, to me, Johnny Bag got better once, his, uh, once he started learning how to wrestle because, mm-hmm. uh, to me, he had, at that time, a picture-perfect shooting star press. It was good. Like, his, to me, I – I rather, to me, I even thought his was better than Jushin Thunder Liger, the guy who invented it. I thought it was better than Billy Kidman. And I think there's only been one other person I've seen uh, do it the same way Mark Merrill does it, and that's uh, Minoru Tanaka from Japan. And that dude's almost 50 doing a shooting star press as a finisher.
1: Well, if you're in good shape, you know.
0: I mean, he was in good shape. He was also a shoot fighter. You know, uh, was trained by uh, Yoshiaki Atsu, uh, Fujiwara. You know, he did some stuff in America with Inoki, you know, stuff like that. Because uh, the Inoki Dojo still does the uh, the Inoki jungle fight every year. Yeah. So I don't really, know, man.
1: It's Things have changed, and I don't particularly like them because I don't have a wrestling product to watch. Hey, I dude. watch I watch Power. Um, I'll catch the Briscoes on occasion.
0: I'm surprised you haven't watched SWE in Texas. I haven't heard of it. So, uh, SWE is a, a Texas promotion. Um, they're pretty old school. It's run by former NWA World Heavyweight Champion Tim Storm. But you got, oh, old, school, yeah. you got old school people on there. You got Miranda Gordy, the daughter of uh, – Terry Bam Bam Gordy who wrestles there and last week she was on an episode of FRM Podcast uh, show that I'm also part of one of the wrestling panels. Um, you know, you got so many people like I'm surprised you haven't picked up on being a fan of Thunder Rosa in the uh, women's wrestling division.
1: I watch her. I, I know who she is. I've seen her. Um, I listen to all the podcasts like everybody else and I heard uh, Cornet. Talking about it about her and I picked up on her and watched a few things. But here again, um, you know, I, I started watching it in NWA power, I believe it was. And um, but here again, yeah, you know, I, I got real sour with NWA power for a while when they kicked Cornette off for no reason.
0: Just because of something he said.
1: And I mean look, the man's there to cut promos. He cuts a promo and you kick him out. So, and it wasn't even his worst promo. I mean, you know. It wasn't like he was um New Jack or anything.
0: Oh no, it's just that cancel culture bullshit, you know. Yeah, and, and- like some of the stuff, especially watching some of the wrestling promos back then, they couldn't say the same stuff that they say now.
1: Oh no. Oh no. Or even the wrestling. Okay, At one time in Smoky Mountain, I believe, you had Dixie Dynamite wrestling a Nazi. In one of the early shows, it was Dixie Dynamite versus some Nazi character. It was a jobber. And I don't even know who he was. But can you imagine having a Confederate flag mask guy now fighting a Nazi? Good Lord. They would. You couldn't do it.
0: They still do it.
1: Well, not like they used to. I
0: mean, yes, they do. Not- Once again, so I'm going to tell you what you need to do whenever you get a chance. You need to download the Fight TV app. Yeah. It kills all the territorial independence that are going on today. Areas like Alabama and the Carolinas. Yes.
1: Good. I'll check it out.
0: You do it. Like, I use Fight Plus for. It's like five bucks a month, but you yes. get full access to a lot of the independent shows. I mean, there's, I mean, yeah, it's it's not your classy, typical wrestling area, but they, I I still watch the independents. I even watch the ones that are in bingo halls and you know high school gymnasiums. Like, you can't That's go nice. wrong with the indies.
1: I don't know, Mike. That I agree. I'm probably going to check it out, and I appreciate the tip. But when I watch some of these shows and I see 25 people in a bar, I think about like the Greensboro Coliseum when, you know, guys typically when they throw a punch, when they're throwing a working punch, they'd have to stomp their foot, right? Well, wow. they wouldn't do that in Greensboro or a big arena in the south because every time Dusty Rhodes hits somebody – Everybody in the crowd went,
0: ooh. ooh, yep.
1: And everybody, you and that's all you heard was this big roar. And then Flair would would hit somebody, and this was I well before the roar. I mean, it would just, yeah. And then you would you would hear, I mean, my God, you'd have Ronnie Garvin fighting Ric Flair, and them throwing chops on each other, blood splying out of their chest, and everybody's just screaming bloody murder. Uh, And then you go to some of these independent shows now, and there's only 20 or 30 people there, and it's silent. It's dead silent. Um, You know, used to be there were grandmas that would go and get their weekly ticket, and kids, and girls, and women. Now, I've watched a couple of independent shows. Not recently, but it's all men. It's all men. An angle like the Rock and Roll Express wouldn't work without women in the auditorium. Um, And I'll be honest, when Ricky Morton was on WCW and he was getting beat to hell and he was crying, literally crying, and he'd go right to the camera, inches away from the camera, and he'd mouth the words, help me, help me. The girls in the arena would just start screaming. And then he'd do that stupid tuck and roll, do that forward somersault, and hit Robert and with a hot tag, and the whole place would erupt. I mean, you, you just can't do those kind of things without a big crowd and a diverse crowd on top of that. Where are you going to get the stories in world class of the old lady taking her cane in the front row the wooden cane and hitting Jim Cornette over the back of the head with a wooden cane? Doesn't happen today. Doesn't happen. Or, I mean, let's be real. One of the greatest angles of all time. Junkyard Dog is in, I forget the arena in Louisiana. He's somewhere in New Orleans, I believe. And he's supposed to be blind. And somebody pulled a gun and was going to shoot one of the free birds or something. And he had to duck out of the way. <laughs> What? Because they were going to shoot the Freebirds because they really thought JYD was blind. You just don't don't see that anymore.
0: That's that's just keeping it kayfabe, you know. The, the I, know realism. I know. It's a People shame.
1: I've seen more than once. Jim Cornette put four uh, horseshoes in that tennis racket. He's going swinging up and down the aisle because they're trying to jump in the aisle and kill him. Good Lord.
0: I'm telling you, watching some good old Smoky Mountain and seeing those crowd reactions of getting legit heat, I mean, it's yeah. its so perfect to watch because it's like you don't really see that anymore.
1: All right, let me ask you this real quick. I know we're winding down, but um, right. in all of wrestling, who's the greatest heat magnet?
0: Of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't matter what era. No. Y'all have an answer. I got to go with Austin Idol.
1: He's in my top five.
0: He's He's in in my my top top five too, but I remember the stories I've heard from different shoot interviews of where he couldn't get anything to eat at the local restaurant. People were spitting in his food, putting glass shards in his food, this food. It's true. You know, all because he cut Jerry Lawler's hair. Mhm. So, he's definitely in my top 5. Um
1: to me it's NWA late 70s early to mid 80s uh NWA Piper. When he oh, was yeah. working Crockett and got to get heat. Got to get heat. And he would go people in hotels. He's fighting people in hotels to get heat. He's, he's starting fights with people in the front row and going to hotels to fight them to get heat. And there's, there's a story that Flair tells about going to the Bahamas. They almost got killed. Him and Piper went to the Bahamas and they, they had a black uh, Bahamian champion, a local champion and, Flair was supposed to go 60 minutes with him in Bahamas and Piper's out there drawing so much heat because apparently he was um, supposed to be like, um, I I don't know. They brought out the Bahamian flag and they brought out the American flag. As they're going down the aisle, Piper started causing a bunch of heat and they had to take him out in an ambulance. They had to hide Piper and Flair in an ambulance and drive them to the airport. In an ambulance. That's
0: real heat. That is real heat, man. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd say another one, too, New Jack.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah, oh, God. Yeah, I forgot about New Jack. Yeah, yeah. for the time, uh, no. his promos were out, out there. And I think what he said was. Um,
0: the one about O.J. Simpson. Well, no. Well, that
1: one was, yeah, but one of his greatest lines, and it's the truth. I'm a college-educated man, which makes me bright and smart, but I also have a prison record, which makes me meaner than hell. Um, I'm a college-educated man with a prison record. So, uh, you look at what he did to that kid in ECW, the mass transit kid, just because the kid didn't know how to work, and... He was trying to get over on New Jack, and New Jack kind of got stiff with him. Um Daniel killed that kid, didn't he? Or did he kill that kid?
0: What Mass Transit? Nah, he almost killed him. He just yeah. He, he just fucked him up pretty bad. But uh it, yeah. but you know what? You can't blame New Jack for that because after you know No, I don't was, blame him. Well, not just that, he the, the kid broke the veteran's code. You don't tell a wrestler what you're going to do and what you want to do. You always ask the more experienced person, hey, what do you want to do? Instead, I agree.
1: And New Jack was, I mean, for, I mean, you know, and Cornette tells a story about Smokey. You know, all he told him was go out and get heat with the white people. He didn't tell him what to say or how to say it or when to say it. And every time New Jack would say something, Cornette would be in the back laughing. But he's like, I think it we went a little bit too far. You know, it's like, hey, Jim, you told me to get some heat. So I got some heat.
0: Yeah. Uh, plus, it ain't like Cornet didn't mind the heat.
1: <laughs> no, no, it didn't. Good gracious. Um,
0: even even I thought it was pretty good.
1: Yep, I'm just looking at some of the comments here. One of your friends was talking about one uh, person calling in was uh, talking about Cornette's NWA comment. Yeah, I agree. It's it's what it is. It's what it is, man. Um, but it's a cancel culture nowadays, and you can't you can't do things to get heat like you used to. And what they're doing now to get heat is a little over the top and it's a little excessive, but the thing is heat's better when heat builds and Roddy Piper was a heel for years. And most of his programs were six to eight months and he went through five or six or seven different types of matches with the same guy. He went with Valentine match after match after match. And all everybody ever really remembers is the dog collar matches. Oh, but yeah! for the dog collar matches, they had to build it up. So it was DQ here, studio run in here, pull apart here, uh, DQ the other way, Broadway, time limit, and it just built and built and built. And now the longest angle the WWF have is about seven minutes. they will build an angle, and they'll blow it off by the next commercial break.
0: It's the creative man.
1: Then you'll have guys post pictures of them at a family barbecue out in the backyard. Look, I'll I'll admit one of the greatest things that I like looking at today on YouTube are the Briscoes out at Sandy Fork doing farm work, talking about how they're going to get this guy or get that guy or beat that guy or beat this guy. You never see guys like the Briscoes out getting selfies and barbecue pictures at a family barbecue with the people they're trying to get heat with, which I know is kind of old school, but Hey, it's what makes it real. It's what makes it believable. You got to have the guys in the white hats and you got to have the guys in the black hats and the Briscoes don't like anybody.
0: Oh, Oh, trust me. It's so true. But when it comes to their fans, they are like all for them. Like, um, a couple years ago, Ring of Honor did a show, which is pretty much where they're doing their TV tapings, over at uh, UNBC, which is uh, one you know, you of those, didn't you? Yeah, I went to one of the pay-per-views, and literally, I think it was Best in the World, uh, there was literally a whole section of the arena that was paid for by the Briscoes, so their whole family could go, mm-hmm. and there was literally a section where their whole family was there the dad, the mom, the kids, the wives, brothers, sisters. Like, I ended up got. getting a photo with Papa Briscoe,
1: and you know, I respect them because you got the faces and you got the heels, but every once in a while, in a in a wrestling organization, you have a guy that is not a face. He's not a heel. People like him, but he's just the same guy, no matter. And he just, he's going to fight everybody. Piper was kind of like that. Um, the Legion of Doom was like that. Um, the Road Warriors. You didn't have to turn a face or heel because they're just going to fight everybody and kill them. Exactly. Uh, some guys are like that. The Briscoes are like that. Um yeah, they're a little heelish, but everybody likes them because they're real. And look, talking about guys that scary to death, they don't have to be necessarily the biggest guys. Jay and Mark are not that big, but I tell yeah. you what, if I if I run across them, they're going to kill me in a heartbeat. Oh, of course. If I look at them sideways, good lord.
0: And I mean, they've been not only just heavyweight tag champs, but junior heavyweight tag champs. Yeah. You know, and I'm they... Really looking-
1: they're just they're they're kind of an anomaly
0: exactly. uh,
1: james storm i i love james storm me too love loved him in tna he was an old- school throwback
0: he's back in impact too
1: a lot of those guys but they went up to the wwe and they just didn't
0: use him right he didn't go to wwe though
1: well what he correct me if i'm wrong what in nxt
0: yeah for like one match and They never let it, you know, go further than that. Because I
1: thought he was there. I thought he was there for a couple of months.
0: He he did one match, and he cut a promo. And it was the same week that they brought in Eric Young. But they paid Eric Young more than what they paid James Storm.
1: You want to talk about, hey, you remember we talked about, you know, every program had to be like a smorgasbord, like when you go to a buffet and you had to have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, and I mentioned that uh, Jimmy Valiant. Later, Jimmy Valiant was the comic relief in um, Crockett.
0: Yeah, Charlie. I
1: love Eric Young. He's he's good comic relief. Crazy funny Eric Young is hilarious to watch.
0: Yeah, like he's a more serious character. I like it, though. I like his current faction he's got on uh, TNA slash Impact Wrestling. Um,
1: I need to start watching again if James Storm is back down there.
0: Samoa Joe will
1: probably show up there before too long. I think
0: they're going to do that just so he can take the belt away from Kenny Omega. But um, Impact basically went back to basics, back to how things were during their heyday. Um, As long as Dixie
1: Carter ain't involved in it.
0: Oh no! Scott Demore took it over.
1: Thank God.
0: And if anybody knows old school booking in twenty twenty one, in terms of smaller promotions, it's uh, it's Scott Demore. He knows. Yeah.
1: Well, let me ask you this: on the TNA product, are they are they advertising waffles and tire irons?
0: No, but they do have a working agreement with All Elite Wrestling. Ah.
1: Uh-huh. I just I need to know where to get my waffles and tire arms. That's all I need to know.
0: <laughs> You'd watch it way too much NWA power. I
1: love <laughs> that stuff, man. I, got, I, mean, they, started I love back,
0: they started back up.
1: Yeah, I got a little sour when they got rid of Jim. I, I like Jim.
0: Jim's I mean, it's boy. also and that's another thing too because the guy who produces it, uh I forgot his name. I know his last name, Marquez. Um, David Marquez. Um, He started this thing called the United Wrestling Network. So I think that was why, just because of sponsors and all that, he didn't want to lose the sponsors we had. But But. you
1: have to understand, all of Jim's stuff is out there.
0: His podcast
1: is out there. And you got to know when you book the man, you got to know what you're going to get.
0: Oh, I agree. I I, uh, do not disagree with you.
1: And it's just it's sad when the man cuts a promo and you pay him to cut promos and then, oh, he he hurt me a little bit or he said something. It was a little bit. I mean, this man, the day after the Challenger explosion, got on national TV after he burned Ronnie Garvin's face and said, Ronnie Garvin went up like the Challenger and they had to stop the tape. And Dusty told him, hey, kid, it's too soon. Too soon with that. Oh, I, I you know,
0: I mean, that's, that's how it is. You know,
1: I mean, it's, it's kind of like me. You're not going to, you're not going to have me come out and, and, and do something unless you want an honest opinion of something. And you want me to speak my mind because I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. And maybe that's why that your uh, former employer is also my former employer. And I left shortly after you left. And now I'm working in a whole other state.
0: Me too. So, <laughs>
1: but we won't mention who those people are.
0: They don't um, have to. They, they're, to me, they're non-existent.
1: Yeah, well. I, yeah, well. There you go.
0: They didn't, but, um, they didn't appreciate you people as workers.
1: No. And I was a heck of a job for him. I was laid down doing jobs every damn day.
0: Exactly.
1: I was, we, were, we were both doing jobs every day. And what it is it? Seen. Um what is it? Mike Mills says, pin me, pay me, boss.
0: Yes, yeah, pretty much.
1: That was what we were doing.
0: We were there to just pick up a check and do the J O B. We were out snow.
1: Folks, those of you listening at home that don't know us uh, or don't know me especially, I'm sure you know Mike, but we've had conversations like this pretty much daily for years in my classroom, so it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun.
0: Yes. Is there and anything else
1: you want to discuss before we get off here?
0: Um, I mean, that pretty much about covers it for now. I mean, trust me, this won't be the last time we'll get you on here to talk about the old school wrestling you know, as they called it. Well, you know, you know,
1: we went from, I think we started off in Wigan, England, and we went all the way to the uh, the circuses and the sideshows, and we did a little carny action going into the beginning of the territories to modern days. So we covered I mean, we, about 200 years there.
0: Yeah, and then we pretty much, we kind of stayed in the South.
1: <laughs> well, look, I... I'm very very knowledgeable at what I know. Um, I'm cool I, with it. Like, I, will be, I will be totally honest with people out there. There are people out there that know more about Crockett than me, but those people are rare. Um, and they probably have professional podcasts, and they probably have professional websites. The people over at uh, NWA, um, uh, Mid-Atlantic Gateway, probably know a little bit more than me, probably Jim. But when it comes to NWA, I'm a huge fan, always have been, I know a lot about Georgia because that's kind of the area we live in. Georgia um,
0: Championship Wrestling, oh yeah.
1: And you know, living down here now as an adult, I watch the old films, and oh yeah, they came to Savannah, and I live like right down the road from the Civic Center and stuff. But uh, yeah, and Florida just always fascinated me. Gordon Sully was one of the guys that I respected a lot, and but pretty much the South is what I know. I've Never been to Minnesota. I couldn't tell you much about the uh, AWA. Yeah,
0: I've been to Minnesota.
1: Yeah, the only thing I could tell you about the AWA are all the AWA guys that came south. Um, the Road Warriors, uh, hitting for a little while, Bret Hart. Believe it or not, Bret Hart was in Jim Crockett for a while, guys, in Georgia. Oh, yeah. If he, if he was for a cup of coffee, anyway, for a little while.
0: And then Owen did the same thing with uh, the DNWA.
1: Yeah. And they, I think I saw a tape the other day. It was on Crockett and it was one of those Saturday morning shows. And Brett was on there. He couldn't be much more than 20. And I think Stu just, just sent him out and he lost in like 10 minutes in Crockett. And then I saw a, uh, Georgia championship wrestling with Gordon Soley doing the studio show out of Atlanta. And, uh, He did a job there for, I want to say, one of the fullers. um, uh,
0: Usually, Brett was the fill-in whenever Bruce didn't want to go anywhere. Um, He was very, very smooth, very technical,
1: but he ended up doing a 10 or 15-minute TV filler job between commercial breaks, which for a 20-year-old kid, you would kind of expect that.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, plus... He didn't want to be booked strong because he's Stu Hart's kid. You know, that was another thing, too.
1: Yeah, you got to live under that shadow.
0: But, I mean, I'd like to say he got out of that shadow and, you know, became his own wrestler and his own image um, as the hitman. But, you know, watching the territories and, you know, people kind of forget Stampede Wrestling was part of the NWA before it got bought out by WWF. Absolutely. And And I'll be
1: honest, there are, there are promotions that I like that, you know, I like some of the guys, some of the guys I don't, that didn't fit, but all of Stu's guys that he trained from Stampede, which was most of them, they all wrestle different. They're different people, but they all have the same similar styles, the same way they set moves up. And it's just, you could tell a Stu Hart wrestler. Okay, You can really tell a Stu Hart wrestler and I respect all of them. And to look at the dungeon the way it was and just, just how bad that place was. You got a quarter inch mat on linoleum and that's all you had and there's holes in the walls and holes in the ceilings and they're down there just stretching each other and learning their craft and they're all double tough. I respected everybody, every one of Stu's kids. And that's kind of what i try to do with amateur wrestling here. Um, most of the kids that I train when they go to other schools and they get other coaches and they go other places, they still, people can tell they've been trained by me. And I try to leave that imprint much like Stu did. Um, whatever whatever the style is i try to imprint that on my kids and people can tell and a lot of the trainers were like that back then but boy calgary i i love calgary everybody that came out of there
0: oh yeah it's it's a who's who's the people that have either been training calgary or did like a run in calgary you know had like bad news brown uh you know olympian uh medalist bronze Medalist in judo, you know, you have Brian Pillman, you've had Lance Storm, Chris Jericho, uh, you know, the Hart family, you know, and not not just that, you know, Steve Blackman. I didn't know until a few years ago, Steve Blackman was trained in the dungeon where he did like a stint in the dungeon, you know, back at, that's what, how he learned how to wrestle back when he had that long curly haired mullet.
1: Who is the you watch the video on YouTube of Stu stretching somebody, putting him in the sugar and all that, and I and can't his
0: face is like turning purple and all that.
1: Who is that kid? I can't tell from his I face.
0: Was, I think he was like an independent wrestler in that uh, Canada. I know the black dude that was with him was uh you know Kevin Randleman. Uh uh-huh. but I know the white kid, I think that was just some uh independent wrestler from Quebec.
1: I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I'm a pretty tough guy and, and I can take some pain, especially with wrestling and stuff. But I would not want Stu Hart to lay a finger on me. I would just beg that off. Oh, no.
0: No, I don't
1: think I'm that tough. Not at all. Stu, God, he scared the hell out of me. No. Uh. I don't know, man. It's but hey, economy. um I don't want to cut you short, but I kinda I got work tomorrow.
0: Me too. I got it.
1: I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> Thank you again for having me on. If you want me to come back, I would be more than happy to do so.
0: Oh most uh, definitely.
1: I am at your disposal.
0: Oh yeah, most most definitely. And oh, I hope yeah. I didn't
1: Talk too much or dominate the conversation oh, no, too bad.
0: No, no, the thing no. is,
1: folks, you have to understand I'm a teacher by profession. It's what I do. And um, also, when I get talking about wrestling with Mike, I get very excited because I mean, Mike I mean, understands what I understand and I just want to share. And I get a little excited sometimes. So thank you for putting up with me. Thank you for tolerating me. Uh, I hope some cool. people out there have learned a few things. And I hope I were was able rather to educate folks and bring them along with the way things used to be.
0: Yeah. I mean, if, if anything, it's I've, uh, I've enjoyed it, you know?
1: Well, thank you for having me. And like I said, you shoot me a message two or three days in advance, and I'd be more than happy to come back. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, no problem. Hey, hope to see you next time, brother.
1: Anytime. I'm going to go ahead and go. Y'all have a good evening. Thank you.
0: All righty. And uh, we would like to thank our guest, uh, Coach Sitterson. Like I said, um, when it comes to talking about pro wrestling, we could pick up where we left off at. You know, talking about old school, we can talk about anything. You know, everyone has their own opinion. And now because it's, I feel like watching me some old school territorial wrestling, um uh, fans of Micro World Order, um, once again, thank you for continuing promoting the show, supporting. I know a lot of people right now, not going to say any names, but they are trying to use my name as a way to stay on the island of relev- relevancy. Uh, as much as I appreciate that, please exit out of my island. That is all. On behalf of Mike World Order, uh, next week's episode uh, will be back on Wednesdays. This coming Sunday, me and J Rod, my grand ambassador to the Mike World Order brand, you can find him at J Rod Numero One on uh, Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, we are going to do a watch along, shooting the shit and talking shit about the WWE pay per view. WrestleMania Backlash, because we're going to give some great backlash on it. So we're probably going to have, like I said, Coach Citizen make a return to do a part two of going old school, you know, to the panel that's out there listening. You know, appreciate you guys coming on, J-Rod, Travis, Mikey Starks, you know, Man, I love that fucking Mikey Stark's character. Whenever uh, we do FRM, like he's uh, he's he's hilarious. You know, I, I like to get him live on an episode as well too. Um, you know, unfortunately, those who couldn't make it, you know, it's still all good. Hopefully, you guys get a chance to watch it on the replay. Uh, right now, I'm still trying to work on getting every the last week's episode on uh, YouTube, which. I'll uh I will. It's just uh, I'm a busy guy right now, so please be patient with me. I will make sure that uh anyone who listens to the podcast on any of our major platforms, you will be compensated. If you want to buy Mike World Order merchandise, remember tinyurl.com slash mwo merch. And you can find me at Instagram at Mike World Order. You can find me on Facebook at Mike Cook World Order. And of course, on Twitter, you can find me at Mike Unit. And that's Mike spelled with five I's unit. That being said, thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope some of you guys learned something out of it. <clears throat> Mike Freeland, you know. So, that being said, guys, have a good night. Hope to see you guys Sunday. We will not be doing the pre-show. We are going straight into the pay-per-view when uh, we do the watch-along. So for those who want to join in, please do. If Even if y'all got to do like separate screens to watch the pay-per-view and watch us talk this shit about the show, please do. It's And if you want to join in on the panel, please let me know. I will not hesitate to send you a link. It's not going to be just me and J-Rod. There's going to be other people that, if they're available, that will join in as well, too. So if you want to join in on the reaction panel, give me a holler. Y'all got me everywhere on social media. So that being said, goodbye and good night. Bang. <laughs> yeah. This is Mike Thunder, the lover from Down Under. Just want to let you know that you can't have a complete transformation in the Mike World Order without having Mike World Order merchandise. Oh, yeah. Just remember, if you want the ladies to feel the rain, you got to give them the thunder. Check out the website at tinyurl.com nwo merch so you can make the ladies see your swagger and feel the thunder.